listening to Intentional Christianity. In this podcast, we're dedicated to helping you develop a mindset of how to process information and scenarios we frequently encounter as Christians using scripture and critical thinking. Through listening, we hope to help you better engage with the world and ultimately point others to Christ. Hey everybody, welcome back to Intentional Christianity. Uh, Today we have a special guest with us, our lead pastor, Trent. We're pumped to have him on here. He's really wise and um, we're just so blessed to have him. So the topic we're going to be talking about is how to deal with somebody that's been hurt by the church and is then turned off from the gospel and just how to love them and how to share the gospel with them. So um, just some ways I want to hear. I don't know if you guys ever had like friends that have been hurt by the church and like in what ways has the church hurt people? That's a great question. So maybe uh, I'd love to hear from you guys because I think I, I can offer some thoughts about yeah, how do we go about loving people who have been hurt by the church? Um, and it's a little bit unique when you're in the when you're on staff at a church, vocationally in ministry. There's that aspect where you sort of are tied to the church in such a way that sometimes it can be even a little more challenging uh, for folks who have experienced that hurt. But I'm curious for y'all, your stage of life, has that been the case for y'all? I mean, when you encounter friends, how have they been hurt by the church? What's that looked like? I think everyone's experience is different with being hurt by the church, but I just like my best advice or just a simple piece of advice would just be to remember that the church isn't necessarily perfect. God is the only one that's perfect. Like humans are fallen and we still make mistakes. And so if you've had a bad church experience, I just ask that you would contemplate that and pray about it and just try and seek forgiveness in that. Yeah. God is not the fault. It's people that are the fault. And so people are, are corrupted. And unfortunately, that can spread into a church, uh, especially as in a Christianity. I think it's the largest religion in the world and Catholicism being the largest denomination. Uh, and so just like with something that's that big, just with the faults of people, unfortunately, things, their corruptness just gets in. But that's not how the church was supposed to be. And we'll get into that a little bit, just some of the different parts of the church and the body of the church and some of the functions that it plays. But like Lillian said, that's not the original intention of the church. And um, I know just some, the church has had a weird history too. Before before the Reformation, the Catholic church had a whole bunch of funky stuff going on. Like you could buy things to kind of just dis, uh, dismiss your sin. You could buy things, to dismiss your sin. Um, they still believe that you have to go straight to the, the, the Pope is the way you get to God rather than access to God through Christ. Um, so still some weird things, but that with all those different ways to get to God, that allows human intervention into things that God intended for us to do directly to him through Christ. So it kind of replaces Christ with a person, which uh, allows for corruption. And that opens the doors to a whole bunch of different types of hurt that people can experience. And uh, unfortunately, like media outlets love those kind of things because the world, Satan will do anything he can to slander the church and just put a bad name to Christianity and, and God. So... With, with that being said, I kind of want to look at some of the intentions for the church and how God designed the church to be. Sure. Um, well, let me can I offer one thought. So yeah. I certainly, I think the question we were coming off of was how have we seen folks who have been hurt by the church? And there I think we should make a distinction uh, because often when somebody says, I've been hurt by the church, they usually mean one of two things. They either mean I've been hurt by another Christian, whether they are a Christian or not. 
right? So it means someone that I have interacted with who claims the name of Christ has done something that, you know, that has caused me hurt or harm. Uh, so that's one. It's it's pretty personal in a relational sense. But the uh, the other distinction I want to make is sometimes what people mean when they say, I've been hurt by the church, is they mean, I've been hurt by the institutional church, mm-hmm. like by the organization. Yeah. So there they usually mean um, there was some policy or procedure or something in the life of a church they attended. Now, this is usually the person who grew up in church or at least has some exposure to the church. So the non-Christian who's maybe never never been in a church, might, might say, I've been hurt by the church. And what they usually mean is, I've been hurt by somebody who says they're a Christian or somebody who, who is a Christian. The other side of that is usually someone who has grown up in the church, uh, may themselves claim to be a Christian, maybe is a Christian. And they can sometimes mean, I grew up in this environment where maybe it was ultra-legalistic or it was... Um, you know, the opposite of that, which we would, you know, which is, um, Hey, kind of anything goes and there's something that has caused harm. And so, um, I think that's a helpful distinction to make yeah, because you want to know, well, what is that hurt? And so the first, you know, in terms of like any counsel I might give for, I think our kind of overriding subject is, um, how do we care for people? who have been hurt by the church is one. No, it's just ask questions. That would be the first piece of advice I would give is ask questions in detail about what, where does that, how did that happen? What is the hurt you feel? Uh, try to understand that experience because from there then um, it could be that that hurt is rooted in a misunderstanding of the way the church is organized, why it functions in certain ways, why it might bring discipline into the life of a believer. Sometimes Someone might say, I've been hurt by the church. And what they really mean is the church told me I shouldn't have done something and the church was right. Um, they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing. Uh, maybe that was done well. Maybe it wasn't done well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the church could be right doctrinally and theologically, but could be wrong uh, in the way they handled that situation or the approach that they took, the demeanor. Um, so, you know, if it's relational, there could be misunderstanding. So I'm, I'm getting into the details probably more than you want me to at the moment. But I guess that's my first piece of advice would just be ask questions, try and distinguish. Are they talking about relational hurt that was caused between them and another believer? Or are they talking about um, church leadership or the organization that is a church? And by the way, that could be a large church or a small one. Because um, church has, the church is an organized thing. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that would be the first thing. Yeah, I would definitely emphasize like asking questions because just understanding where they're coming from Mm -hmm. is going to give you like a better advantage point in a way of just like understanding where they're at to understand where you can best help them and not be giving them information or advice that's not anywhere near their situation. Yeah. Yeah. Can I tell you, (laughs) as a pastor, here's one of the things that I find very hard to do is to not jump in and immediately defend the church. So I might have someone come into my office and, and tell me a, a tough story. Um, and because I, I serve as a leader within a local church, um, I'm prone to maybe see that side of things. I'm prone to see where, why le- leaders in another church, let's say, that someone might be talking about, why they may have made a choice that they did, um, why they may have offered a correction, why they, you know, why they did something that they did. Because leadership is hard and I empathize with other leaders. And so something I find hard to do is not to immediately defend the church. Now, others, I, I'm, that's my background and my role. 
others, you guys might find it difficult not to immediately just kind of go, oh, yeah, can't believe they did that to you. Can't believe someone in the church did X, Y, or Z. So um, asking good questions, as we said, you know, listening well, not immediately some of the things that I might encourage, and, and maybe this is, I'm curious if it would be all bent or not. So a friend comes to you and they're saying, and let's say another Christian hurt them. I'm curious, is your bent to defend the person who hurt them and say, well, maybe you didn't understand or maybe da, da, da. Or is it to side with the person who's been hurt? I'm curious, what's your, what is your natural inclination? Probably to side with the church. But if I don't know the answer, I'd go into scripture and to see like, is this something that's church discipline that like is correct by doctrine or, you know, just figuring it out. It's ah, a good standard. Lillian, can I ask you, why do you think your natural predisposition might be to go, well, I'm going to side with the church here or the other Christian versus the person who's coming to me? The church should like be following the scripture and scripture is God breathed and like living active and like his word. And so if the church is following by his word, we are to trust all of God's commands. Okay. So, Are you um, one who naturally is trusting of leadership mm. or authority, let's say? After I've gotten to know them and know that they like preach the word, yes. Okay. Not like, not at first though. Okay. I love that you're going back to the word. Um, I will say, I find that, folk, well, first of all, Andy, what, what would your answer to the question be? Where do you naturally kind of lean? It's a good question. Um, I would think I would, it would ultimately really depend on what they said the church did to them, but it, mm -hmm. I would kind of probably go more along the lines of it's something disciplinary that was a rightful discipline. I'd probably side with the church, but if it's not something where like, I can definitely say the church should have done that. I would probably be more inclined to side with that person. Um, and I feel like part of that would also be because I'd still want them to be open to like anything after that. I would want them to be open to what means that I instantly shut down their um, complaint or thought um, they might not be as inclined to listen to what I have to say after that. So I'd want to be both respecting of the church and recognizing if what the church did is right or wrong, but also respect their position. And so maybe more of a balance, I think. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I ask that question because it's good to know ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, and usually if we've had positive experiences with authority, we trust authority. And if yeah. we've had negative experiences with authority, we often don't. So my guess is you have friends, classmates, who you recognize their natural disposition is to question whatever someone in authority tells them. Yeah. And you probably have classmates whose natural disposition is to say, well, yeah, I don't know why they would mislead me. Of course. So like I, and that has a lot to do with our family lives, you know, parents, how we've experienced authority. I was one who had very positive experiences with authority. So mm -hmm. I, I did not readily question authority. So learning to be critical of authority of leadership um, in an appropriate way was like a learned skill for me. It wasn't something that was um, like I had great pastors in my life. I had great parents, great teachers. Um, very rarely was my trust abused. But of course, others have had very different experiences. And so you guys, I think, are wise. And that what you're saying is obviously go back to the scriptures is what I hear Lillian saying, which is really wonderful counsel. And Andy, I hear you saying like each situation is unique. You got to listen to the situation yeah. and assess it. But knowing your own disposition towards towards leadership and authority can be helpful in knowing 
what you're going to be prone, how you're going to be prone, the lens that you're going to use to listen to this person's situation and how they're bringing maybe a complaint uh, to you. So knowing that, and then for me, because I tend to trust authority, that tends to be my background, um, remembering that authority can be abused and often is in a fallen world. And so not immediately to question their critique, to listen to it, and also then not to feel the need to rescue them, not to feel the need to also immediately side with them in a sense of like, well, I need to like so deeply empathize in order for them to feel like I can still have a voice, like that I can just be not in neutral, but I can love them and listen to them without affirming what they're saying or disaffirming, mm -hmm. but just to listen. Cause it is important to recognize that you're, if you were talking to the church leader or if you were talking to this person or to the other Christian that they're having the division with the struggle with, um, there is another side of that story. And so one of the arts, I think as believers of caring for that person well is to not, not immediately come back against what they're saying is false, but also not to necessarily just do what sometimes we feel. And I would guess your generation, the younger we are, maybe the more we're prone to do this is to, is to want to, in the name of compassion, just affirm what they're saying. And there's a way to listen well and love well without necessarily affirming what you can't know. Mm -hmm. And what you can't know often is maybe the other person's side of that story. Um, so does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I may have taken us into left field there, oh, but that's okay. kind of, that actually it brings up a really good point of like not compromising on scripture too, when you're talking to them, because like you said, we may want to appeal to their you know emotions and um, empathize over empathize. But the danger in that is then we start compromising on scripture because if we're like talking to them and they, and um, whatever this issue is that hurt them, if it, it was an actual discipline and we're saying that the church shouldn't have done that, that's a dangerous because now they have this idea that okay i can do this and it's it's okay and the church is just wrong and disciplining me for this when they actually aren't uh i actually in uh exodus 32 when aaron goes up or aaron makes the golden calf because the people were uh waiting for moses to come down from the mountain with the commandments and he's taken a really long time and it's almost like aaron almost gets peer peer pressured by the people to make the golden calf and he makes the golden calf but he compromised. Like this was a guy that had seen the Red Sea parted. He'd seen the pillar of fire. He'd eaten in God's presence. So he'd seen the glory of God, yet he still compromised on the scripture um, and his doctrine and beliefs, which shows that like even the most solid leaders can still compromise these beliefs. And it's something we have to guard ourselves against when we're talking to somebody that we cannot compromise on scripture just to try and appeal to them, which is probably one of the hardest things. But like you said, there's still a way to love them in that without necessarily affirming. Yeah, I think that's good. Andy. And, and I'll point at the other side of that coin. So you, you point out Aaron, uh, how is a leader called by God, established by God still makes that mistake. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, leaders can mislead, uh, no doubt. You know, the other side of that is I think of two of my favorite chapters about discipleship in the new Testament, both by Paul, uh, first Thessalonians mm -hmm. two, and then second Corinthians three and four, I'm going to cheat there and put two, two chapters together, but uh, second Corinthians three and four. And in those what's so interesting, two different churches, the Corinthian church, the church in Thessalonica. And in both places, Paul in a way is defending his ministry. Uh, not in a way he really is. And he's not doing it to defend himself uh, as a leader or as an apostle. He's doing it to defend the gospel itself because the accusations coming against him then are sort of tied to 
the fidelity of the gospel, whether it's true, whether it's right. And so he defends the choices he's making as a leader, as a minister, as a way of saying, well, you need to understand that I'm making these choices in the faith ones, even though you're saying something different uh, to these two churches, because he doesn't want them to, in undermining him, he doesn't want the gospel itself to be undermined. That makes sense. And so like the, the Thessalonian church is kind of, is talking, well, you sent Timothy to us, but you didn't come yourself. And so he said, man, I wanted to come to you. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to be with you, but I wasn't able to. That's why I sent Timothy. Like, but don't, don't take that as a lack of love. And he's saying, I didn't just want to share the gospel with you. I want to share my very life with you. And in second Corinthians, he, he really sort of in no uncertain terms for a couple chapters just really says, we didn't come to you with false words. We weren't looking to make much of ourselves. Um, we had integrity in what we said. Um, and it's really just these marks of what a faithful minister of the gospel looks like. He's really laying out for us in those chapters. Man, if you want to be identified as someone who is not just sort of trying to tickle people's ears and tell them what they want to hear, that you're not abusing leadership, then here are the marks of that. And I would just encourage anybody to just spend a little time and study those chapters, First Thessalonians 2 and then Second Corinthians 3 and 4. I think they outline in such a great way whether or not my character aligns with the character of a minister of the gospel in such a way that if someone does say, hey, you've hurt me, um, which can happen by accident, of course, mm-hmm. that it's not rooted in abusive leadership. It's not rooted in an attempt to deceive or to, uh, you know, aim at selfish gain. These are some of the things that he talks about. So I think in particular for maybe uh, folks rising up into ministry, uh, you know, having a sense of a call to ministry, those are some good places to just reflect because godly character is the, this isn't the subject of this podcast, but godly character is the, is the remedy for the problem we're talking about. Leaders with godly character, uh, yeah. it won't take it away forever. Um, it doesn't undo it all. But um, I, anyone I've worked with will tell you that I use a phrase quite a bit. It's godly character wins the day. Um, and what I mean by that is you'll always have people that mistrust you, people that accuse you, um, that didn't like a choice you made. That's just comes with leadership. There's just no way around it. And if you can't take being questioned, if you need everybody to like you, you just can't. You can't lead. It's just not going to work. Yeah. Um, you can't be a minister of the gospel, really. But um, with that, you never want to allow an accusation that has any merit because you have not been diligent about developing godly character. And so I tell young people with a sense of call to ministry all the time, more important than you know certain schooling, more important than um, you know, sort of an acumen for certain skills and traits or certain gift sets of the Holy Spirit. Uh, more important than all those things is the development of godly character. Um, and that takes a lot of diligence and it takes a lot of discipline and it takes a heart for the Lord. So I, um, I just encourage young people all the time. That's the most important thing. And it will prevent a lot of the kinds of hurt that we're talking about, it will also grant you the wisdom to help kind of mediate between believers. Cause you pastors spend a good amount of time doing that. Mm-hmm. Spend a good amount of time going, Hey, there's a disagreement between these two believers. They've hurt each other. How am I going to help them hear each other and navigate towards unity? 
is one of the primary roles. Of, I mean, Jesus said he's going to send the spirit into every believer, the helper who would come. And we always talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. I use an acronym, PURE, P-U-R-E, because the Holy Spirit's role biblically is to purify, unify, uh, reveal, and empower. So almost everything the Spirit does biblically can be put into one of those categories. Um, and so I always think about that unifying work of the Spirit, of unifying believers. So anyway, I don't know if I was taking that, you know, away from where you wanted to go. But... I don't know. That's good. Um yeah, I, unity is a great thing. As I was, my next question then was going to be like, how can we, um, as individuals, then also help prevent these things in the church? And, and before we go there, I think it's a good um, distinguish, like to distinguish the local church and then the international and global church. Um, you have like the global church, which is the church body, every believer, every Christian in the world. Uh, that's their global church. And then you have the local church institutions, which is, you know, the building that you go to. So uh, what we're, when we talk about, when we talk about hurt by the church. We're usually talking about the local church because that's where the hurt happens because the word of God should never, it will convict, but it shouldn't hurt. It should cause a spiritual um, pain of, I need to repent of this sin and I need Christ but it shouldn't be any sort of earthly like pain. Um, so the way we say it often is it convicts, but it doesn't condemn. Yes. Yes. All right. So for those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no condemnation. In other words, we're not apart from Christ. We're not separated from him. We are in him. Nothing can take us out of his hand. Yet the word of God convicts clearly. And can I offer one, maybe just like nuance to something you said there? Mm -hmm. So um, you're talking about universal versus local church. Yeah. And so I would say local church isn't just the building we go to. Uh, universal versus local churches. Universal churches, every believer across time, everywhere in the world. Um, and so that's such an awesome thought to think about the mm -hmm. universal church, being the people of Christ, his bride. Um, we'll all be together one day in the kingdom. The local church is a local gathering of people. So I would say it's not just the building. It's the people who form a local expression of that universal body. And then, of course, you get denominations and all these kinds of things. So, yeah, I don't think we're talking about the division between like Methodists and Baptists, you know, <laughs> yeah. or um, th that sort of thing. So but I would then clarify that when you talk about sort of the um, the other thing to, to think about is within every local church, which, again, it's not just the building. It's the people that sort of make the covenant together and say, now we're going to live out the mission of the gospel and the one another's of Scripture together. And so we always, theologically, we talk about what makes a local church, um, a faith, you know, if you have to define the church, theologians always define it as a place where the gospel is faithfully preached. Um, discipline is faithfully exercised. Interestingly enough, discipline comes into play and the ordinance of scripture are practiced and the ordinances that we would recognize would be baptism and the Lord's supper. So, those become kind of the key indicators of, well, how do you know something's a church versus just like, um, you know, five people getting together in a house to do a Bible study, yeah. which would be awesome. But we wouldn't categorize that as a church, probably because they're not uh, ministering the ordinances of the church or in, in Catholic terminology, the sacraments. But there's a reason why we differ from the Catholic church on what we call that. So I would say then the other category we think in is the universal church. I'm sorry, not the universal. I'm going back to our first terms, the visible and the invisible church. Now, do you guys know what I mean when I say that? 
It's okay to say no. <laughs> so visible church is when you come to a local, when you come here to West Shore Free Church on a Sunday morning uh, and you see all these people gathered, that's the visible church. It's all the people who make a claim to be part of a church, whether through their presence or because they say, yes, that's my church. Um, the invisible church is a theological concept, which is everyone in that gathering who is truly in Christ and will truly be part of the church for all eternity. What that implies is that not everyone who's part of the visible church who shows up on a Sunday morning is necessarily part of the invisible church. Mm. That's a reason why some of the hurt happens in the church sometimes um, because of that distinguishing mark. Now, I was just preparing for two Sundays from now before you guys came. And we're going to look at a passage in Matthew chapter seven, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, uh, will basically enter into my kingdom. He says they will have done. Some will say we cast out demons in your name. We, you know, prophesy in your name. Surely, surely we're part of this thing called the invisible church. And Jesus says, I never depart from me. I never knew you. Scariest words in the Bible. Too. Right. Yeah. yeah. So this real litmus test of it's clearly not just sort of supernatural works that say, oh, well, that person's definitely you know, a believer. So not to get too far into that, but just to bring that clarity then. Mm -hmm. And and I think the reason you were framing it that way, universal versus local, is because most of the hurt that, exper that Christians experience between one another or an unbeliever experiences from someone is at the local church level. Yeah. Uh, is that, am I right? Yeah. That, okay. So then go back to your initial question was about that. How can we do the part in the church to prevent, um, just to help prevent these kinds of things from happening? I, and, and before we answer that, I just wanted to bring up Romans 12 talks about the, the church body being like, it's one body, but many different parts. Mm -hmm. And so while uh, this question is kind of a focus on the individual level, I don't want to take away from the idea that the church really is, it's a body, like mm -hmm. each person uh, your body, you have an arm, you have an eye, you have a leg. And so each of those does a different part. And it's the same way in the church. Everybody has a different part to play, but it's all one body. So we should function as one body. And I think if the church operated that way, the hurt that we experience would not happen if the church functioned as one body, which is something that uh, I think we should be praying for is that's really lacking in the church. It's just unity. But yeah, how can we prevent or help some of these things? from happening man andy so Lillian, i want to hear your i want to hear what you think um and i'm going to say that's so wise ephesians 4 it's another place where paul talks about uses the metaphor of the body one's a hand one's an eye um and so valuing one another's gifts i yeah. think is part of what you're saying yeah. right which is if i value that you are you have the gifts you have you're an eye let's say to use the metaphor mm -hmm. and you value that i have the gifts that i have and i'm a hand rather than being jealous of one another yeah. um that we see we need each other mm -hmm. But man, I need you. Uh, you need me so that we sometimes the hurt that's caused is because there's this feeling of in the church of um, being dismissed or disregarded, um, not listened to, not cared for. And so I think understanding our gifts, operating in them and then valuing one another's gifts. I think you're spot on is a great way is one part, um, I think, of preventing uh, some of the hurt that happens. And Paul in that, in using that metaphor actually points to the joints of the body as the place where two, mm. two parts of the body come together. Mm -hmm. Right. And that those joints are, um, supposed to be ruled over by, he says, grace, that there's supposed to be this, that I give you grace, you give me grace. In other words, 
you know, the reason your arm, the reason you, you and I can move our arms is because we have joints. Mm-hmm. If they, if there were no joints, they would just be immobile units. Yeah. And so it's actually where the two parts of the body come together that make the body effective. And so in using that metaphor, what Paul is saying is, okay, so what do you, what's the joint? What is the thing between two people that make them, make them work yeah. and make the church work? And the answer to that, he says, is grace. Mm-hmm. It's that you give each other grace, that you treat one another with grace. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the joint. That is what makes the body come together and operate in a right way. And I think it's pretty telling, right? Is if we were quick to give grace to one another, um, I would go a long way, I think, in response to your question, which yeah. is how do we help prevent these hurts from happening or deal with them well when they do? I've got a few other thoughts, but Lillian, what is, what do you think in terms of how do we prevent these kinds of things? I think on an individual basis, just like each continually and daily seeking after Christ and seeking to die to yourself daily and become more like him. Because if you're becoming more godly, if you're becoming more like Christ, you're going to be more selfless and there's going to be less conflict within like believers and people outside the church. Mm-hmm. I love that. So I hear you saying humility, which is, I mean, selflessness, they're, they're hand in hand, mm-hmm. but I love that. Yeah. I think you're wise. Not, um, not asking what does the body do for me, but what am I going to do for the body? How do I serve others? Yeah, that's good. That selflessness. Christ would have never gone to the cross without that. Right. Mm-hmm. If he were thinking about himself and, uh, his, you know, own agenda and the, and the scriptures testify to that when he says, not my will, but yours. One of the most interesting theological concepts is to think, did Jesus have a, a will different from the will of the father mm-hmm. at that moment? He's acknowledging not my will, not, I don't think he's necessarily saying he had a separate will from the father, but he's recognized in his humanity mm-hmm. that could he avoid the, the pain and the punishment? Yeah. Of course he would, any of us would. Um, but mm-hmm. the, the deity of Christ, his unity with the Father, uh, and his perfect obedience is displayed in his saying, the reason I've been sent into the world is for this. Mm-hmm. And now I'll walk in that will of the Father who sent me. So, um, so, so Andy, you've, you've said the body, operating with grace towards one another, knowing our gifts. Well, then you said servant-heartedness and humility, right? So I think those are... I mean, we could kind of stop there <laughs> and say that's that's really good. Yeah. Um, can I offer one or two more? Mm-hmm. How yeah. do we? Again, the question is, how do we prevent these things from happening? I hope this air conditioning is not so loud that it's going to mess up your sound. But no, no, my no, office no, no. has very loud air conditioning, yeah. y'all. Probably. I mean, with the temperature it is outside, the air conditioning is great. It's, it's working hard. So, yeah. We had a podcast one time where a friend was eating chips in the background. And you can, those are like very first one. Yeah. So funny. She's like, you can our, hear the chip bag. And it's like, funny because our stairs are super creaky. She was, she was trying to help the stairs, and it's like, like <laughs> there's there's nothing louder than chips. I have one of my. You'll want to cut all this out, but I have one of my kids <laughs> who is really sensitive to eating sounds. Like she hates. Really? I mean, who likes listening to somebody That's chew? True. Nobody. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that. I'm no, I I haven't found the person that goes, I like that sound, but <laughs> yeah. she's particularly sensitive to it, and so she will regularly remove herself from her brother and sister. If they're eating cereal in the morning, like all sitting at the bar counter, she's like, no, I'm going over here. Cause so like, funny. I just can't handle it. Like, like the laser eyes. I'm like, stop that. She, oh, she <laughs> despises it. I'm like, honey, no one can prevent that sound. You're just going to have to, yeah, it's fine. Go somewhere else. You know? Mm-hmm. All right. So anyway, so that you can That's cut awesome. that part out. But um, so a couple of thoughts. How, how do we keep, you know, division 
in the body or hurt between Christians from happening. I mean, one, we recognize it's an impossible task. You guys are talking about servant-heartedness, knowing our giftedness. I think that kind of falls under the category of developing godly character, paying attention to that development of godly character in ourselves. Let me say at the church level, can I, I'll just speak as a church leader, um, because among individual believers, there's a ton of answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them fall under the develop godly character, focus on that, right? Yeah. But also, um, I'll, I will say at that level of just between two believers, really believing that you cannot know the will of God apart from the community of the saints. Um, and you can't be sanctified apart from the community of the saints, I would say is a really important concept. So in other words, like in my life group, one of the things we've all, we, we set our expectations. This is what it means to be part of this group. We're going to do life together. You know, we're going to show up for life group. It's a commitment. We prioritize over everything else, you know, kids, sports, uh, our own, you know, I've got a lot of work to do tonight. No, we show up um, and we're going to be in one of those lives. But one of the things then that comes with us, we say we have permission to say hard things to each other. And here's the key. If my life group comes to me and says, Trent, we think that something you're doing is not good. I have committed before they've ever done that to believe that what they are saying is true. In other words, I give them the authority in my life to where if I know they love me, I know they're for me, they're not seeking to harm me. They've proved that again and again. What some believers do is when they're confronted about something or when somebody comes to them and says, I think that wasn't good. The response often is Mm self-defense. Well, here's what you don't understand. Here's why I'm not wrong. And we have all committed to say that our first instinct will be to say, I receive what you're saying. And, and I trust that you see better than I see, particularly if it's a group. You know what I mean? If it's one other member of my life group and they come to me, I might, what I would say is if I disagree immediately, I'd say, well, let's talk to the rest of the group about it. Let's see what they say. And that comes from a conviction that God intends for us to discern his will and to be sanctified through others. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we're individualistic as a society. Mm-hmm. We have this sense that the way we follow God is very individual. So I go into my prayer closet and God reveals something to me and then I go. And that certainly happens. But I would say you should never act upon something God reveals to you without the affirmation of believers who know you well. So in your case, I don't know your parents, your families very well. Um, but my presumption would be that would be your parents would be the first line of that in your own lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also because they have some years on you guys, God's put them in your life as, as people of authority, mm-hmm. presuming they know and love the Lord. And um, so that being the case, we, we misuse our individual relationship with the Lord sometimes in our sense that um, we don't, believe that we need other people in order to discern God's will and in order to be sanctified, to become more like Jesus. If we started from there, so many of the things that cause us hurt, we would be willing to receive rather than being defensive about it. And I think that is a huge thing. Acts 13, one of my favorite chapters, sort of alluding to this, where um, Paul and Barnabas are being sent out by the church and it says they're praying and fasting And the Holy Spirit spoke to the church, set aside aside Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've appointed them. Mm -hmm. And they pray and fast some more, and then they send them. 
one of the things I love about that is that it shows a what we call communal discernment, right? That there's this way in which Paul and Barnabas didn't go, we're called. The church said, Paul and Barnish, Barnabas, you're called. Um, now, at other points, Paul discerns things individually from the Spirit. But at every point, that affirmation of our of our church family, whether it be in our life group or whether it be the church leadership, is an important thing. And if we operated from the pre-presumption that that's necessary in our lives, that might help a bit. Mm-hmm. Some of this division, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And I got one more, but let me, anything y'all want to jump in with there? I was response to that? thinking that it alludes to like iron sharpens iron in that mm-hmm. passage. Yep. Just because we did a, we did an uh, episode on fellowship. I think our third or fourth one. Yeah. Um, and, but yeah, just like fellowship is not always something that we like when we're in fellowship, we're not always going to hear something that we necessarily want to hear as you're saying, but it's constructive criticism in a sense that if, like you said, if they think that there's something that we're doing that is not biblical or aligns with God, what God would want, then they have the authority to come. And we should accept that because it still builds us up and that being in a life group is not always going to be a, a, um, I don't know, something that you're like, Oh yeah, I love this. We're going to just walk through this. I don't know. I don't really know how to say this, but like, it's not always something that's going to be that you're going to want to hear. It's going to be, constructive but it's not always going to be in the form of admiration and um agreement of what you're doing yeah affirmation right you don't just get affirmation you should get that but yeah that's true and you know the other thing about you know living life together we call them life groups here but you Mm -hmm. know the church call them different things living life together it's just hard um because it at points someone may bring something to me and they might not handle it the best way and it really does hurt (laughs) you know but that's where Forgiving one another, um, you know, being quick to forgive, keeping short accounts is so valuable. So the other thing I would say in the local church and just speaking as kind of the leadership level. So that was more I was at the kind of individual believer to believer level. Um, I would say most people who come into my office who have left the church. They're, they're no longer part of a church or I just end up in a conversation they're like on the beach or in the grocery store. I'm a pretty extroverted guy. So I end up in a lot of conversations in a lot of places. And when people hear you're a pastor, they either like shut down, right? So I don't like hide that fact. They, they, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Really? Some people immediately get real quiet. They don't want to talk anymore. It's interesting. And you kind of have to figure out how to keep pursuing them in conversation. Yeah. Then other people, they want to tell you all about whatever their church experience has been. Um, and so that is really interesting when it's been a hurtful one. Um, and so mostly I just listen a ton. Um, but often bad experiences with church leadership that I hear about have everything to do with, I mean, sometimes one not understanding the role of church leadership in their life. So they don't, they don't accept that it's appropriate for church leadership to redirect them or to bring discipline into their life. But one of the reasons we advocate people should be part of a local church is because none of us is uh, safe from going off the rails because we all have sin. Mm -hmm. And so having authority in our lives and submitting ourselves to it is a really godly thing to say, I intentionally submit myself to authority. Now, you know, if leadership becomes abusive, if it is non-biblical, Lillian, you were kind of alluding to that earlier, then yeah, you shouldn't be a part of that church. You should, you should move on if they don't handle those things with gentleness and grace and love. Uh, But if, but just being corrected is not a reason to say, well, they hurt me. Mm -hmm. Um, But often I find that, 
um, the issues that come up are related to a lack of accountability for leaders in the church. So a lot of the hurt that happens for believers is because a pastor or a leader of, of some kind of ministry was not, didn't have appropriate accountability set up in their life. So that could be a volunteer in children's ministry um, who is, you know, not being kind to kids or, or far worse. Um, right. And that's because there weren't appropriate boundaries and safeguards put around that person. There was too much authority given too quickly. So one of the guards, one of the ways we can prevent hurt in the church is by not allowing people to have positions of authority that have not earned that through the demonstration of godly character. That's why first Timothy three, Titus one, give us really long <laughs> explanations of this is the bar you need to get over to be an elder. And I can tell you, every one of the elders in our church, including myself, we look at that list and it's a daunting list. Mm -hmm. yeah. And we find ourselves going, man, Lord, do I, I, I think by the, I think by your grace, I am living according to this, but I recognize failures and flaws in myself. I mean, I see in my heart a lot of things in. that I am, you know, um, I can be impatient that I can be prone to fits of anger, you know, I mean, whatever it may be. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, there's, so there's a reason why. And one of the things we talk about the other board at our church here, um, is that no one, um, I think sometimes when we think about believers, we want to set them up to do ministry, but, but it's appropriate to guard the gates of leadership. That's the term we use, guard the gates of leadership. No one has a right to become an elder in a church. That is no one's God-given right. That is something in our, in our context that, that the congregation decides, um, nominates, and then votes on you know, who are going to be elders. And we do a pretty serious vetting process. So we have a, there's a lot of interview questions that our elders go through. We interview their families. We talk to their children. We talk to their coworkers at work to determine whether they have a good reputation with outsiders. So we set a high bar you have to get over and we are not afraid to tell somebody no and say no. And that's not just true of the elder board. That's true of coming onto our staff team. That's true of being a volunteer uh, in certain types of ministry. You, not everybody is able to do whatever they want to do. So I think that's one because it's abusive leadership that causes a ton of problems. And then for those who are in leadership, I'll just use myself as the example, um, is one of the mistakes that happens a lot of times in churches is that senior pastors, and that's my role here, are set up as sort of um, beyond reproach. And there's no accountability for them because no one feels they can question them. Um, and of course, that's the job of the elders in the church. And so one is just very simply a good theological understanding of eldership. So we believe in what we call the plurality of elders, which means that I am not the chief elder or the head of the elder board. I am one among the elders. So I'm only one elder and no one elder has the authority to decide anything for the church. We only have authority together. Our authority is in what we call plurality yeah. in the group. That's where the authority is. The authority is not in any one individual. So if you went up to any one of our elders after church and you said, this person needs to be disciplined and, or this person did such and such, or I want you to, I mean, let's not even use discipline. Let's say, I want you to put a playground out here for the kids. That elder cannot say, okay, done. The elder himself does not have the authority to do that, but together we do. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's a safeguard, right? Now the elders of our church know 
that they are to guard the doctrine of the church. They're to forecast the future. Where are we going? They, they lead and govern in financial matters, those kinds of things. But in terms of guarding the doctrine of the church, we, we have a regular ongoing conversation that I am accountable as the chief preacher, teacher in our body. I'm accountable to them. And if there is anything that I say or do that is counter to scripture or is off base, then their job, uh, my job is to remind them that that's their job and to ask them to do it and then, and then to receive it. If they bring it, they give it. And it's hard, no doubt about it. Um, but they know that's their job and they're not afraid to do that job. So setting up those kinds of, that's just one example. And there's a thousand others we could point to, but having good accountability structures for every staff member, particularly for the senior pastor, um, having good, what we call, what I just talked to you about there is church governance, good polity. That's what we call it. It's an exciting term for your listeners. Church polity means how you govern yourself. And there's a lot of different varieties of that, but we think a biblical polity, no matter how you might organize different Baptist church does it different than the Methodist church does it different than the Presbyterian church. But we believe there is no godly church polity that does not involve a plurality of elders leading the church. So that's kind of ground zero. And then within that, there's all kinds of our staff is accountable on numerous levels and in numerous ways. And so having some of those things in place can prevent abusive leadership. Nothing. If, if someone wants to sneak by a uh, really ungodly leader, they can do it for a while. There's no way to, you can hide that for a while, but if you have good policies and procedures, and good accountability over time, it will, it will always come out. Mm. It will always be revealed. And usually the better your structure, um, the faster you'll uncover it and the less hurt that results. But there's no, there's no perfect version of that where it's like somebody can't sneak, get away with something for a little while. So anyway, I'm going on far too long, but hopefully some of that is helpful in terms of how, that question. How do we prevent yeah, these good. kinds of things from happening in the church? Yeah. Yeah, and I think just even like tying all that up, I think if you're just familiar with the scriptures and like pursuing a relationship with Christ, that really kind of is like the overarching branch for a lot of these things. Because if you just follow Jesus' example on how he dealt with, like even the, the woman at the well, like he met her where she was at. He used things she's familiar with, water and a well, like that's what she knew. But he delivered the gospel to her. He said, I'm the living water. Like he used the things that she knew uh, to deliver the gospel to her. And... um so following Jesus' example and just being familiar with the scriptures enough, like you were mentioning, like qualifications for elders. Like if you look at your church and, and you look at these elders and you're saying, okay, are these elders matching the qualifications to what I can see? And asking the people around you um, if they're not meeting those qualifications or there's just not the, the doctrine that they're upholding is not sound doctrine. It should not be a church they're going to. So like the Bible is basically just a huge guidebook for just everything we need in life. It's the living, active, breathing, like word of God. So um, get in that and just be familiar with it. Cause I think that'll really just kind of help everything that we've been talking about and how to, how to deal with the situations. Um, but yeah, are there any like final thoughts? You know, my, maybe my closing thought would just be, I'm thinking in particular on this topic about the person who often grew up in the church and then left the church and they experienced some kind of real hurt. And that happens a lot in youth groups, right? Mm -hmm. There's some kind of hurt. Somebody feels ostracized or outcast or somebody was unkind 
maybe over a very long period of time. And so it pulls them away from the church. And, and I think you guys said something very wise there, which is to remember that no one person, um, you know, if we look to the Lord, if we look to Jesus, obviously he's the only one that's perfect. Um, and so not always equating who Jesus is with who the church is, but of course yeah. the church should strive to represent him. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I would say to, to believers, which I presume is probably most of the people listening to this, um, as you're encountering folks who have been hurt by the church, people in the church and they've left, um, I would just encourage you, you don't need to rush them back into the church. That's not the first thing you should be concerned about. Um, I think the first thing to be concerned, nor do you feel like you have to be the perfect representation of Christ to heal all their wounds. And, um, but just to engage them faithfully, to be willing to ask questions. I mean, I think listening, showing compassion, drawing them back to Christ himself. If we draw people to Christ, he will draw them to his church. And there will be a lot more room for them to maybe step back into the church. And then the other thing I would say is when they're ready to go, when they're ready to kind of venture back in the door of a church, we'll need to just recognize they, that probably feels very vulnerable to them mm-hmm. and there it feels risky. Mm-hmm. And so go with them, be with them. Um, you know, just kind of walk alongside them, um, step by step. And, you know, I think, um, in that, I mean, we're always a lot more courageous together than we are alone. So, we try to be mindful of that. We have a lot of people every Sunday here. We know there are people coming back to church for the first time in a long time. That's that's true almost every Sunday probably here. Um, and, you know, we're a bit larger church, which means you can come to the sanctuary. And if we were 100 people, it would be noted. Like every new person is going to be pretty noticeable amongst a group of 100 people. Um, when you've got a couple thousand, it's less noticeable. And that can be a safe place for folks. And so sometimes we know that Somebody is, this is just a, a place of transition sometimes for somebody. So maybe that's another thing too, is I think when churches are focused on just growing the numbers too much, mm-hmm. then they don't see people as people. Yeah. And they think that their church should be for everybody. And we know that we're not. So yeah. if someone is making their journey back into church and then recognizes, but this isn't church for me, we'll call that a win. Um, that we help them re-engage with the church. And we hope in a way that they experience the love and grace of Christ and and then if another church is a better home for them long-term, that's wonderful. So anyway, thank you guys for letting me be part of the conversation today. Yeah, thank you for coming on. That was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Love that you guys are doing this and love your heart for the Lord is so evident. And, um, and just to your commitment to the Lord and his word. And So it's a joy to be with you guys today. Yeah. Yes. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, we look forward to making our next one. See you.